did no one notice just how off everything was? How many contradictions there were? How many times the story changed? Did no one notice? I just feel so hard for younger you. You were trying to come at him with logic. Yeah. Oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> True that. Why do Christians care so much about what the person in the pew next to them is up to, but give concession after concession to other Christians who have high-profile lives? I was as guilty as the next guy of romanticizing Mike Warnke, but as much as I liked him, I couldn't reconcile a magazine like Cornerstone going on a rampage against someone without good reason and without proof. Bob Larson has been heralded as the world's first Christian shock jock, and with just the couple of examples I've mentioned, it's easy to see why. Never take what anyone says about anything at face value, especially if there is tangible benefit to that person in you believing them. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. Said the grifter man to the gathered crowd, do you hear what I hear? Well, yes, because you just told me to. And what an amazing story. It sure does take courage to get yourself free from the bondages of sin and thwart the devil's plan. You know what? Just take my money. <laughs> I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And this time around, we're going to be looking at a few of the key players and their counterfeits that poured so much gasoline onto the fire that fueled the satanic panic, their messaging endures to this day. Even with every evidence that they're nothing but a bunch of copycat frauds who found the right niche to market their stupidity to an all-too-impressionable audience and ran with it. But before we get into any of that, folks, we need to have a talk. Now, I'm certain that you noticed that there was no episode last week. And there was a very, very good reason for that. A week ago Thursday, I was rushed to the ER for the second time to deal with a kidney stone. And this yeah. time around, we're talking about probably the worst case scenario that you yeah. can experience for a kidney stone. They found a stone that was about eight millimeters, pretty much the size of a bullet. Okay. Yeah. And I can already hear people who have gone through this cringing, holding their backs, bringing their legs together, all of it. I can, yeah. I can see this all in my mind because there are plenty of people out there that know what I'm going through right now. That said, the whole thing was just a bit of a clusterfuck. And I'm not going to go into details. These are details for the lawyers, and I'm not even kidding with some of the stuff that happened as a result of this. But I'm not going to get terribly deep into that part of the story. The last couple of months around here have been difficult, to say the least. We've had a nice little trifecta of bad situations, bad luck, health scares, all of that. First, we lost our dog. And then, and I'll take this out if you don't want it going out there. No, it's fine. You can do, you can say it. And then there was a scare with Shell. Her blood sugar had bottomed out and she was just behaving very, very, very strangely. All the while telling me that she was okay. <laughs> and then vacillating between I'm okay and I'm scared. Yeah. And the instant I heard the words, I'm scared, that's when I picked up my phone and called 911. So at one o'clock in the morning, we have... We have police and rescue in our house. And I'm just sitting there wondering if I'm about to lose my partner. And it was a very, very scary night. They got her blood sugar under control. 
She came back around. She was shell again. And all was right with the world for another maybe three weeks. And I started seeing telltale signs that I was going to pass another stone. I'm going to give you people some advice. I've learned this lesson the hard way. What they did was not right. But this is unfortunately in this crazy ass country that we live in and the way that healthcare is managed in this crazy ass country that we live in. If you dare to be well, <laughs> if you dare to not have a lot of medical issues going on in your life, the system is rigged to basically weed you out because you're not a viable source of revenue. Mm -hmm. And I was told by both my primary care and by the urologist that I had history with that I was being treated as a new patient because I hadn't been to the doctor in a while. Well, I've never had any real major health concerns. The kidney stone was five years ago and that was it. There hasn't been much in between. And the couple of times that I had a little bit of an emergency, I wound up at urgent care, got antibiotics, whatever I needed, and just went about with my life. It was a lot easier to do that than to try and book an appointment with the doctor. Right. And I did try, but you're talking sometimes, regardless of whether or not you tell them that you're in an emergency situation, they'll book you days and sometimes weeks out. And when you have an infection of any kind, you need care right then and there. Mm -hmm. So I did my job. I called the medical professionals that could help me and they refused to help me because yeah. I'm just not a viable enough source of revenue. And now, even though they had all of my records, even though they knew my history, they flat out refused to see me. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I'm in panic mode at that point and I'm just outside without my dog and just sitting there and contemplating the situation that I was in and that part of my brain that appeals to the purest forms of logic just told me there are several ways that this is going to pan out but it is going to pan out either this thing that you're noticing is going to run its course it's going to disappear and you're going to move on and when you get in to see your new primary care in November you're just going to tell them what happened to you. They will probably issue you a new referral and you can tell them you don't want to go back to that urologist. You can tell them to, to refer you to somebody else. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is that this thing that's going on will hold its course until you can get to the doctor. As long as I'm not in pain, as long as I have no fever, as long as there are no signs of anything majorly bad happening, you should be able to ride it out until you can get in to see a doctor. That's scenario number two. Scenario number three, it escalates and you need immediate help and you go to the ER. Yep. So it turned out to be option three. Mm. I wound up in the ER and then wound up admitted because the size of this thing was too large for me to be able to pass it on my own. Yeah. This is an ongoing odyssey. That involves me going back for outpatient surgery this week and then one more procedure about a week after that. So what does all of this mean? What it means is that for a while now, I've been feeling like there are certain parts of my life where I need to step back, throttle things back and start taking just a little bit better care of me mm -hmm. on a lot of levels. 
Now, I know what this sounds like. It sounds like we're saying goodbye. We're not saying goodbye because this show and what we do with it are major motivators for me. It's something that I feel driven to do. It's something that I feel like I need to do for as long as I can do it. I'm just not sure that I can do it on a weekly basis at yeah. this point. We're going into almost a year into me operating the school already. And I can't even begin to wrap my brain around the fact that it's been a year already, but it has. And I'm doing well and we're making good money and everyone's getting paid. All of our bills are paid. That's personal and business bills. Everything's looking good. But I also have a lot of stress. That stress is taking a toll on my body. And I don't know if the timing of this has anything to do with that. So I'm not going to blame all of the things that I try to cram into my life for what I've been going through for the past several weeks. But I do know that at this point, a decision has to be made to alleviate some time somewhere. Now, you know, if I was doing this for a living, it would be a much, much different thing. If we had more support, it would be a much different thing. And I'm not chastising anyone for not giving us money because I know how things are. And I also know what kind of a niche market this is for this show. So I never expected it to make a lot of money. I never expected to be able to be in a place where I could just do this. And honestly, as much as I enjoy doing it, the once a week thing and the one show only thing about this works for me. Yeah. I have other ideas, but I certainly don't have time. No. With all due respect, there's the rub. So what is going to happen with the future of Unbound? What I think we're going to do is we're going to start off with a brief hiatus. We're going to hopefully, hopefully come back next week with our review of the Amityville Horror. But I'm going in for surgery on Wednesday. I have no idea what my energy levels are going to be like. I have no idea whether or not I'm going to have to cancel more lessons and take things easy and stay home for a couple more days. I don't know. So the plan right now is to get that episode out and then take a little bit of a break. This odyssey of mine with the stone is not going to be over until November 2nd. And then we're talking about my birthday coming up and wanting to enjoy a little bit of that and not wanting to be tethered to my laptop for that entire weekend. Then you've got Thanksgiving. All of this stuff is happening very, very quickly. And once you get into holiday season, it's nothing but stress on top of stress. And there's a lot that you need to do. It's a very different time of year. It can be fun. It can be happy, but it also brings stress. So right now the plan is to get next week's episode out, maybe even try and do it before I go into the hospital. Hopefully like Tuesday night we can get this done. But you know, there's a lot of logistics, a lot of factors. We are heading into a road test week and that's another thing that's going to be taking up a lot of my time. I'm thankful that I have another instructor who is willing to step up and at least do the heavy lifting with the road test this time around. I need help and that's just that. And this guy has, he's a phenomenal instructor and he's been very helpful and he's been very, um, very on point with what he's doing to make sure that my business keeps running smoothly. So once that's done, the plan is to take a break until Christmas week. And then I have the thought in my head 
to do another movie episode where we review Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. <laughs> this has been on my mind for a little while. And yeah. it's like, well, what does that have to do with evangelical thought? Well, number one, you'd be surprised. And number two, I think that there are other avenues of thought that we need to address to make sure that our perceptions of things remain healthy. And I think that as much as I adore this special, I've been watching it since, what, the late 70s? Yeah, okay? something like that. As much as I adore this special, I also know that there's some toxic messaging in there that needs to be addressed. And I think that there are certain things that evangelicals can latch onto with this that perpetuate the kind of toxic thought that it, I would like to believe, accidentally conveys. I mean, think about the time that it came out. Things were different. People thought differently. But right now, it's kind of on my radar. And I would like to round out the year with that episode and then a New Year's episode where we do uh, New Year Know You 3.0. Yeah. I think that, that would be a really, really good thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether or not I'm going to have the time or the energy, but we would like to do this. And with weeks and weeks in between and all the time in the world to prep and not have to cram everything into a couple of days, I feel like we can pull it off. Beyond that, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm just not sure if we're going to immediately continue, if we're going to take a month or two or three off and then come back. But I keep reminding myself that there's a lot of content out there now. We've covered a lot of bases. And even though I say I feel like we've only scratched the surface, we've scratched it well. (laughs) And there's a lot of good content out there that you can continue to share, that you can continue to benefit from, that when certain conversations happen, you can think of, well, in this episode, they said, and it might help this person. That's what we're going for. We're also going to be turning off Patreon donations because, yeah. you know, we're, to be perfectly honest, we haven't delivered on what we've said that we wanted to deliver, especially at the higher levels. Right. And I do not feel right continuing to take money when we're not putting out a persistent product every week. Right. So we're going to put a moratorium on Patreon donations, and we're also going to uh, do a little bit of a hiatus with the show. We'll be back when we can. I, I'm, I'm not going to do what the guys on How To Heretic did, and this is not a criticism. I know life happens for everybody, yeah. but they left things very open-ended, and then off mic basically said, yeah, we're done. But I'm on mic, and I'm telling you I'm not done. I just need a break. Yeah. I really, really, really need a break. And I'm going to give it to myself. I'm going to enjoy my birthday weekend. I'm going to spend some time down in New York with friends during Thanksgiving weekend. And I'm going to start doing just a little bit more for me that doesn't have me tethered to a laptop all weekend. Yeah. And again, not complaining. This is something that I feel is important. I'm driven to do it. And I wish. I wish I had the time and the energy, but right now I'm exhausted. I am mentally exhausted. I am emotionally exhausted. I am physically exhausted. Yeah. And it's time for me to take a little step back, regroup inside my head and figure out just precisely what I can do with this show going forward. Mm-hmm. So that's the plan. And again, we appreciate everyone who comes back every week to hear what we have to say next, to 
get the information that we have to offer and who use the show as a means of helping more people get and stay unbound. Please don't think that we're walking away from this. We're not. And please do keep sharing the content and please do continue sharing it with that sense of urgency because people's lives are hanging in the balance here. And I don't want to walk away from my responsibility to keep giving the counterpoint and give people good things to think about when it comes to the things that have been crammed into their heads for years. And with that in mind, I want to make just a couple more comments about my stay in the hospital because it makes a really, really valid point about certain ways that we're taught to think about things as evangelicals. There was a point when I was laying there in that hospital bed. And again, as happens often in crisis and stressful situations, my brain started telling me to pray. Mm. Well, here's the thing. Number one, it was never really a serious thought in my head. It's just that these are the thoughts that have been put in there. They linger. And when you feel like you don't have the level of control over things that you want to have, praying gives you that sense of control. The problem is that it doesn't do any good. So, I mean, I had I had a lot more to say about this last week. I almost put out a mini-sode last week after I got out of the hospital. But when I listened back to the raw audio, it just, it, it was obvious that I was still too drugged up. Yeah. And I couldn't. With all of my editing skills, I couldn't make it make sense, and I couldn't make it sound good. So I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version of it right now. When you find yourself in a situation like that, and your brain starts telling you to pray, remind yourself that the help that you're looking for is probably not far off. It's probably not far away. And remember Fred Rogers' story about the helpers. When you're in hospital, they're all over the place. The helpers are there. And I watched what some of these people go through and I watched the way that they're treated by other patients. It's disgusting. The way that a lot of people deal with healthcare professionals is just flat out disgusting. Be thankful that you are in that position where help is available. You don't need to pray to an outside source. The sources are all around you in situations like that. Tap into those sources. Let them help you the way that they need to help you because that's how you get well. Give thanks where thanks is due. Thank the people who come out to do their job day after day, knowing that they're going to be abused by people, knowing that it's not going to be the most positive of experiences. But those people keep getting out of bed every single day, going to their jobs and doing what they do to help strangers. Okay, that's significant. It means something and we need them. So be kind to them and give credit where it's due. Don't insult what they do by sitting there and praying. If you need something, you don't need to pray. You just need to hit that nurse bell and somebody will be there. It's a lot easier than hoping that someone's listening because when you hit that bell and they come on that speaker, you know someone's listening. Right. That's the takeaway that I have for you for that part of the experience. So I'm going to leave you with that as a lead in to our main topic. No Christians behaving badly this week. We're not going to do it again for the uh, Amityville episode either. We're just going to keep it simple. So this is your opening <laughs> segment for this episode. And yeah, I'm tired and I'm fatigued and I definitely have some pain, but I feel like at least just this, this once right now, I should plug away at this. I should get this message out. And I hope that you enjoy my perspective 
on these experiences. And if you are anywhere near my age, you probably remember these people. You've probably heard of them and you probably were influenced by them. So let's just go ahead and start that discussion now. So we're going to be talking about a few of the major players in the satanic panic back in the 80s and what they did and expose them for the grifters that they were, basically. So I mentioned Mike Warnke, I mentioned Bob Larson, I mentioned Gary Greenwald and Joe Vieira. We're going to be talking about all of them over the course of this conversation. But the one that pissed me off the most when we first found out about all of this was Mike Warnke. Oh, God. Because, I mean, I trusted him. Yeah. And he had a certain charisma, at least in his um, his studio comedy albums. Yeah. There was a degree of charisma about him. He came across as an authority. Right. And being in the environment that we were in, we were all guilty of not vetting information properly, not questioning anything. Right. This guy said he went through these things, and we just believed him. So Mike Warnke was born in Evansville, Indiana in 1946 to parents Alfred and Louise Warnke. When he was five, they moved to Manchester, Tennessee, where his father opened up a truck stop. In 1955, Mike Warnke's mother was killed in a car accident. And in 1958, his father died, leaving Warnke an orphan. So by age 12, his parents were gone. So let's just build up the case here Mm -hmm. for why certain things like this can happen. You lose both of your parents by age 12 and you're being shuffled around to other places, living with people who aren't your parents, dealing with things that weren't part of your upbringing. All of these things factor in to how you deal with life later on. It's not an excuse. It's just psychology. So after the death of his father, Mike was taken to live with two of his aunts in Sparta, And from there, he went to uh, live with his half-sister and her husband all the way out on the West Coast in San Bernardino, California. In June of 1965, he graduated from Rim of the World High School in Lake Arrowhead. That's a really weird name for a school. Yes, it is. Um, That September, Warren Key enrolled at San Bernardino Valley College, but he only spent one semester there. And that was where, by his account, he was introduced to Satanism. Right. On June 2nd, 1966, he enlisted in the Navy. And after graduating from boot camp in August of that same year, his assigned military occupational specialty was as a hospital corpsman. Just so everyone's aware, a lot of this is coming from the wiki about him. Right. Okay. I'm doing what I always do. I'm reading from that and giving you my commentary in between. According to the account of his life in his book, The Satan Seller, the only one that I ever bothered to read. Oh, yeah. Warren Key converted to Christianity during boot camp. However, high school acquaintance Charlotte Tweeton has stated that she recalls Warren Key proclaiming faith in Christ in the year prior to his Navy enlistment. So this to me is like what you do when you take a book and adapt it to a movie. Yeah. You change certain details. You insert details into different places on the timeline because it gives it more of a flow. Right. And that's what he did here. He also wrote that he began dating fellow Rim of the World High School alumna Sue Studer during this time period as well. This has been disproven, however, and Warren Key was actually engaged to Lois Eckenrod 
at this time. So many women. Oh I my know. God, this guy went through so many women. In 1967, he completed naval corpsman training, returned to San Diego, and married Sue Studer. And together they had two kids. In 1969, he was deployed to Vietnam for a six-month tour and got wounded in battle during those six months. And for that, he was awarded a Purple Heart. All of this stuff is true. Oh, yeah. All of this stuff is true. You can verify all Yes. Of now, Warren Key's own written accounts differ on the number of times that he sustained injuries during his time in Vietnam. In The Satan Cellar, he says that he was wounded twice, while in his second book, Hitchhiking on Hope Street, he states that he was wounded five times. Yeah. Yeah. It's like any other tall tale. It just keeps growing. But you've already goes. got it in writing. That's the thing. It says this in this book, and then it completely contradicts the messaging oh, yeah. in the next book. It's crazy. It dumbfounds me how even when you're in the midst of that kind of thinking, it doesn't raise a red flag. No. When you see this in this book, and then you see this in the next book, and I'm certain there are people out there thinking, well, you know, it was a traumatic time in his life. And certain details might have just resurfaced over time, blah, blah, blah. You can make any excuse that you want. Right. What it boils down to is that he was inflating the story to make it better. Of course. That was it. We're also brought up with the Bible that contradicts itself around every corner. Right. And then we're conditioned to believe that it doesn't. The people who are in our lives as spiritual authorities will deny that those contradictions exist. So when you're used to dealing with that kind of bullshit, your brain doesn't latch onto it anymore. Right. So that's a part of it too. Now, despite these wounds received during his tour of duty as a hospital corpsman, Mike's various accounts have him spending much time detained, allegedly killing a man in battle and surviving being shot several times, including once by an arrow. He says that it was the latter wound for which he was awarded the Purple Heart. He then returned to the States in 1970. While still serving in the Navy, he teamed up with San Diego evangelist Morris Cerullo and was touted for his Satanist experience. Warren Key and Cerullo toured the country participating in charismatic revival meetings. Cerullo wanted to write a book about youth occultism and assigned the writing task to David Balsiger with help from Warren Key. In early 1972, Warren Key requested and received an early discharge from the Navy as a conscientious objector so that he could work full-time in the ministry. Warren Key then left Cerullo's ministry to start his own, forbidding Cerullo to use any of his material. Something happened there. Yeah. It was at this time that Warren Key and Balsiger went on to write the book that would make Warren Key famous, and that was The Satan Seller. In 1972, The Satan Seller was released. Written by Mike Warnke with help from Balsiger and Les Jones, the book tells of Warnke being orphaned as a child and his introduction into Satanism. Further detailed is Warnke's participation in sexual orgies, alcoholism, and drug dealing. His rise in the ranks of Satanism to the level of high priest, whatever that means, because it means different things in different contexts, presiding over satanic rituals including magical spells, summoning demons, ritual sex including a kidnap and rape, he admits to rape in a book. There's no statute of limitations on this. Yeah. Why on earth would that not have raised the attention of law enforcement, if any of it was even true? Right. Because I think that anyone on the outside looking in and reading this understands what he's doing here. That's probably why. Mm. 
And then there was the attempt on his life, a heroin overdose that left him angry and disillusioned. It also talks about how he found Jesus and came home as an evangelist. The story ends with Warren Key living happily in California with his wife, Sue Studer. And fewer than three months after the release, the Satan seller had become a religious bestseller because of course it did, because of what it was about. And here's the bottom line. He invented the whole story. His own testimony was too drab to garner much attention, and he basically latched onto one of the biggest hot-button issues out there in evangelical circles and ran with it. I'm not sure if he was ever sincere about his conversion. I'm certain that he got saved at some point, but I don't think that it was ever a huge part of his personal life. And if it was, I think he just hung out in that environment long enough to learn his grift and run with it. I mean, he had to have some semblance of a grounding in the evangelical community to pull this off. So I'm guessing he played the role well for quite a while and just learned as he went, observed things, took mental notes, and started formulating how he was going to make all of this happen. Maybe it was low self-esteem. Maybe it was because he wanted attention. Maybe he had watched enough televangelist content to know that he was onto a very lucrative grift. All anyone can do here is speculate. The real truth exists inside his head and literally nowhere else. And since the average evangelical has an out-and-out obsession with Satan, demons, and all subjects that fall under their cover, the Satan seller launched Warnke into stardom within evangelical Christian communities. He became a popular speaker at Christian meeting places such as Melody Land in Anaheim, California. That's the only one that I ever heard of with him. Yeah. In 1974, he moved his family to attend Trinity Bible College in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as a nine-month preparation for ministry. Yeah. Nine months? They wasted four years of my life, and this asshole gets through it in a gestation period? And it was here while, among other charismatic Christians and recent converts preparing for a life of ministry, that Warnke met Carolyn Alberti, and the two began an extramarital affair. This will emerge as a pattern in his life. Warnke also met Elijah Cody, an independent schismatic bishop of the Syro-Chaldean Church, also known as the Assyrian Church of the East. Cody ordained Warnke as a deacon in that church, and upon graduation, he was again ordained, and he moved with his family to Denver, Colorado. Now, in November of 75, at an Indiana coffee house, Mike's talk about his conversion from Satanism to Christianity was incidentally recorded. I'm not sure what that means, incidentally recorded. I guess they were uh, recording the Honey Tree concert. Oh, okay, and yeah. He, I don't know if he was after it or before it, but it got caught on tape. Right, they just kept the tape rolling. You just leave it rolling, and then you edit it down so that it basically says what you want it to say. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna put that right out there. So that recording, actually became his first album, Alive, which was soon widely played on Christian radio. That goes back a little bit further than my experience, so yeah. I don't know. There's there's a, a citation needed flag yeah. on that one, but I mean, he, he was popular. He was very popular. And I have no problem believing that this was what kind of got people rec- at least recognizing his name. Right. So uh, later that same year, despite interventions from pastors and other acclaimed ministers, Warnke left his wife for Alberti and filed for divorce. This is another pattern in his life. Right. The divorce was finalized in December 1975, and four months later, four short months later, he was married again. 
So <laughs> it, yeah. it just keeps getting better, folks. His popularity earned him the cover of the September 1976 issue of the Christian magazine Harmony. And with all of this going on. Yeah. I mean, people had to know. <laughs> and they just kind of ignored it. In 1977, he released his second album, Jester in the King's Court, which I have heard many yep. times. In 1978, he recounted his Vietnam experiences on his third album, Hey Doc. I didn't realize these went back as far as they did. I know. I I, know. I had a perception of him as being like all in the 80s. No. But this he... went back further. Yeah. Yeah. And I had all these albums. Oh, yeah. I know. Yep. I, I went through your tapes more than once. Yeah. <laughs> um, Warnke's albums became, quote, the most popular Christian comedy albums ever produced. It's weird that he intermingled comedy with all of this. Right. But he did. But one thing that I noticed about most of his quote-unquote concert tapes was that the comedic part of it was really, really, really short. Yeah. And usually in the very beginning. And that was to loosen up the audience and get them to a place where they were comfortable so that he could start slowly turning up the tension. Yeah. And you go from this emotional high to this sense of dread, and it happens over the course of his talk. Right. And that, as far as I'm concerned, is 100% on purpose. Oh, yeah. So during a tour to Hazard, Kentucky, Warnke met Rose Hall. Here we go again. Mm. She was a thrice-divorced mother of three children, and he began courting her while he was still married to Carolyn. You yeah. see that? This is, this is what this guy does. Yep. Now, Rose Warnke is the one that everyone remembers the most because she was, I think, the only one who inserted herself into any of this. Yeah, and she was often on stage with him. Yep. She sang, and I think she played the guitar. I can't remember what she did, but she sang. She was She was involved. Yes. She Very. was the quintessential pastor's wife yes. in those instances. And she was more visible than any of the others, which I think is why a lot of people don't realize that all of this shit happened. Yeah. Mike and Rose Warnke was the phrase that always came out. Right. When you thought about him and his ministry, Rose is the only one that a lot of people really even think about. She also wrote books. Mm-hmm. So she had a name for herself. Right. Okay. And she was pretty funny, too. She could be humorous. Yeah. They seemed to play off of each other well, but yeah. then most grifter couples do. Mm-hmm. You know, that's I'm, I've I've seen it with the Copelands. I've seen it with the Osteens. I saw it with every Amway couple that ever oh, got up on that stage. Oh yeah, okay? seriously. So it was a good match in terms of what he was trying to do. But the bottom line is, if there has ever been anyone in this world who was just flat out not wired for monogamy, <laughs> it's Mike Warnke. Seriously, you know, he kind of likes to play the field, and probably to this day. He plays the field. It doesn't seem to me like he has a whole lot of conscience because in my mind, it sounds to me like it's in his head that, okay, this is just the next step. This may be wrong in practice, but it's going to work out in the end right? for him, mm-hmm. not That's the people he hurts. Oh, of course. Just him. So his second marriage came to an end when, as Alberti stated in an interview, Quote, Mike threw me into a wall and split my head open. He said, if you go to a local hospital and tell them what your name is, I'll kill you. Carolyn fled to Florida. By November of 1979, their divorce was finalized and Warnke moved to Rose's farm in Kentucky. 
on January 2nd, 1980, Mike Warnke and Rose Hall were married. So if you're keeping count, this is number three. Yeah. Okay. So now they've got six marriages between them at this point. (laughs) Talk about traditional family values and biblical marriage and all of that. So Warnke and his label, Word Records, oh boy, did we have a lot of their content, Mm. feuded over an album which he eventually produced and distributed on his own. And that was the album, A Christian's Perspective on Halloween. I wonder what kind of problem they had with it. Maybe it was just too far out on the fringes for their yeah. for their brand. I don't know. It seemed to be an interview that he did on the radio. Mm-hmm. Because I think somebody was asking him questions. Yeah. And if I heard it today, I'd know he was full of shit because he mispronounced Samhain. Oh, he said Sam Hain. It's some dude named Sam Hain, I guess. Oh, it's like a cheese grater to the Wiccan part of my brain to say <laughs> Sam Hain. But anyway... Word Records did reconcile with him, and by 1981, his album Coming Home was released by them, and now, including his wife Rose, we got higher education in 1982, growing up in 1983, and under Word's Dayspring label, he then released his album Stuff Happens, Good News Tonight, which I think is the first one that I actually bought. That came out in 1986. In 88, we got One in a Million. And in 89, we got Live, Totally Weird. I know I had that one too. (laughs) And then he also had a VHS home video called Do You Hear Me? And, you know, I I was buying all the Christian VHS stuff back then too. Oh, yeah. This one kind of escaped me, but I do recall seeing it. It was either at Word of Life or it was at some kind of a youth rally somewhere where we actually watched this one so i remember it well during the 1980s mike warnke's ministry prospered and as he and rose toured and performed together they raised millions along the way by this point he had a major following and no one seemed to be raising any questions about his personal integrity his obvious philanderer's lifestyle how he bounced from partner to partner in ways that went completely counter to anything that would have been seen as a sound Christian witness or even one note of skepticism about his testimony. Even with all the contradictions firmly in place, contributions to the ministry were over a million dollars in 1985 and over two million each year from 1987 through 1990. He was making bank. Oh, yeah. In 1984, Mike got involved with yet another woman, Susan Patton, and repeated his pattern of cheating on his spouse and leaving her for the other woman. Mike and Rose divorced in 1991, and again, he was remarried in a matter of weeks. Yes, and shortly after that, Rose and Mike wrote another book called Recovering from Divorce. Yeah, because they figured out a way to continue making money together. Of course. They couldn't live with each other, but they could certainly continue the grift. Of course. I have to wonder how Sue felt about all that, knowing what she knew about him. Oh, yeah. Now we're talking, what, four marriages at this point? Oh, my goodness. I can't even with this guy's lack of control over his own dick. Okay, (laughs) I just I can't. He also made a number of other very extravagant claims. In 82 was when he really started to begin exaggerating his achievements. During the 1980s, his claims of academic degrees increased from two bachelor's degrees to two master's degrees to a doctorate in philosophy. And he takes it even further on some of his later stuff and talks about all of these titles that he's amassed and whatnot. 
in the Satan cellar, he says that he was wounded twice in Vietnam and in Hitchhiking for Hope, he said it was five. And I'll say it again. Did no one notice this? Did no one notice just how off everything was? How many contradictions there were? How many times the story changed? Did no one notice? And if they did, did they care? Once people like this get their hooks into their evangelical audience, they seem able to do literally anything and maintain their following. I mean, Jimmy Swaggart made a comeback, and so did Jim Baker. And assholes like Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen have been doing what they do unabated for decades. Mm. Why do Christians care so much about what the person in the pew next to them is up to, but give concession after concession after concession to other Christians who have high-profile lives? Where's the disconnect there? Mike followed up his interest in the serial Chaldean tradition and his 1970s ordination as a deacon with a 1983 ordination by independent bishop Richard Morrill of the Byzantine Catholic Church, Inc. Yeah. I love that part. Kind of weird. This ordination allowed Warnke to call himself bishop. <laughs> Unbelievable. On May 16, 1985, he appeared in a primetime news report about Satanism on ABC's 2020. He actually slipped himself into the fucking mainstream. Yep. He managed to get the attention of mainstream media, who also did next to nothing to question anything that he was saying, even with all of the information out on the table about him. That just absolutely dumbfounds me. I mean, it doesn't surprise me in evangelical settings, but in a journalistic setting, oh yeah, you need to vet this asshole just a little bit better, ABC. In the show's episode titled The Devil Worshippers, Warnke was included in a number of segments where he discussed the implements and clothing used in satanic ceremonies, a scar allegedly indicating where he was repeatedly cut so that his blood could be used in satanic ceremonies, and what drew him to Satanism. After Warnke's appearance on 2020, he was frequently cited as an expert on the occult by Christian radio host Bob Larson and the Chick Publications stable of authors. If these are the people, ladies and gentlemen, if these are the people who are giving you the attention that you're looking for, there's a problem. Yeah, okay? there really is. When your credibility comes from assholes like Bob Larson and Jack Chick, there's a problem. Mm. And the popular media is the same way. No one, and I mean no one, seemed to have the first inclination to vet him, question him, or ask for proof of literally anything he was saying. And here's where the shit starts to hit the fan. Cornerstone Magazine was one of the most liberal, balanced voices in evangelicalism for its time. These people were a different kind of Christian, but looking back, I can say that they were every bit as toxic as any other evangelical source. They were just smarter than the average, and that is what drew me to them. What they had to say was meaty, it made sense, at least in evangelical terms, and the ideas were presented in a way that was intelligent on levels I saw literally nowhere else. That said, their parent organization, Jesus People USA, affectionately referred to as Japuza, was a hotbed of child sexual abuse, and we will tell their story in depth on this show eventually too. At that point, no one on the outside had a clue about any of the other stuff that didn't make it into the records, the videos, and the news interviews. But apparently there were enough people out there that were interested in what this guy was really all about 
that they started doing some digging. So when the article exposing Mike Warnke came out in 1992, it was pretty devastating to me. Yeah. Very, very much so. I was as guilty as the next guy of romanticizing Mike Warnke, but as much as I liked him, I couldn't reconcile a magazine like Cornerstone going on a rampage against someone without good reason and without proof. They spent two years investigating Mike before the article came out, and they even contacted him and wanted to interview him, and he was having none of it. Of course not. The Cornerstone investigation spanned from interviews with over a hundred of Warren Key's personal friends and acquaintances to his ministry's tax receipts. It it revealed a number of inaccuracies and evidence of fraud and deceit in Warren Key's accounts. They interviewed people from his personal life and they interviewed people from his business life. Right. And all of the dross that started making its way to the top was absolutely incredible. During the course of Cornerstone's investigation, pictures of Warren Key taken during the time that he was alleged to be a Satanist priest were discovered. Rather than showing an emaciated drug addict sporting long fingernails and waist-length hair like he described himself, the pictures from that very same time period showed Mike Warnke as a typical, quote, square of the mid-1960s. So he was just an average kid, probably a little bit on the awkward side. Yeah. And that was it. I also remember from the article, one of the people they interviewed was told about the fingernails and the long hair. And she's like, he never had long fingernails and waist length hair. His hair was short. It was short, short, short. She said it three times. Didn't she like laugh? She just like laughed. Oh, yeah. Because the whole thing is pretty laughable. It's ridiculous. It's like, no, Mike Warnke? Oh, hell no. That was definitely not him. That was one part of the, uh, the interview that I remember really, really well was her reaction to that and the way she punched the short three times. The investigations also revealed Warren... <laughs> I can't even get through this. The investigation also revealed Warnke's claims that he and Charles Manson had attended a satanic ritual to be false. Manson was in federal prison at the time, having no known ties to any satanic church, period. Yeah. (laughs) This is just, it's such a clusterfuck. The investigation further uncovered that before joining the Navy, Warnke had been involved with the College Christian Ministry Campus Crusade for Christ. The investigation also revealed the unflattering circumstances surrounding Warnke's multiple marriages, affairs, and divorces. Regarding one Christian intervention attempt, the Cornerstone article states, Don Ryling, Mike Johnson, Wes Yoder, and Mike and Carolyn were there. You'd have never guessed that this was a meeting of Christians, says Ryling. Mike and Carolyn were swearing the whole time, and they must have gone through a whole pack of cigarettes. Most critically, the investigation showed how Warnke could not have done the many things that he claimed to have taken part in throughout the nine months he claimed to be a Satanist, including his claims to be a drug-addicted dealer or a satanic high priest. The timelines were all over the map. There were so many things that conflicted to the point where it was impossible to believe literally anything this guy had to say about his experiences. And again, before publishing anything about him, Cornerstone contacted Mike Warnke for an interview, but he and the magazine could not agree to terms for that interview. Cornerstone revealed its story at the annual Christian Booksellers Association convention in June of 1992. 
once it was all out on the table, mm-hmm. this is what he had to say. He said, I stand behind my testimony of being delivered and set free by the power of Jesus Christ after being a satanic high priest, exactly as published in my book, The Satan Seller. And here we go. Here we go. He actually, this fucker actually admits it. Some information was purposefully changed to protect the privacy of certain individuals and to protect readers from using the book as a guide for occultism and satanic practices. So all the stuff you were talking about was basically just role play. If, if I'm reading this the right way, because there was a lot of detail about what was going on. And now he's saying, well, we changed some details because we didn't want people emulating this. And the last part of his, uh, his response here is, but as we stated in the front of the book, the events are absolutely as described. How do those two things fit together? They don't. We changed things, but they were absolutely as described. That's not possible. That is an impossibility, Mike. Either it was this way or it wasn't this way. Which is it? Well, we know the answers because the truth is out there and it's documented and we know. We don't have to believe him. We know what the actual answers are. And despite these assertions, Warnke did not provide the name of a single Satanist, but he did use a lot of invectives against his ex-wife, Carolyn. It's amazing how we have to put the name at the end we can't you just can't say his ex-wife because the question is well which one yeah you know so this was carolyn in the ensuing months he conceded parts of the allegations telling christianity today that there had been only 13 members of his coven not 1500 as originally claimed and that of those 13 the whereabouts of five were unknown to him while the other eight had since died it's the canadian girlfriend scenario (laughs) she was from Niagara Falls you wouldn't know her Uh and we dated for a little while and then she died (laughs) wow that's the first thing that I thought of when I saw that it was only after all of this that a little more responsible journalism actually surfaced the Lexington Herald leader revealed that Warnke's ministry had engaged in financial misdeeds that's putting it lightly and that quote Mike his ex-wife Rose and her brother Neil Hall received a total of $809,680 in salary at a time when the ministry newsletter claimed donations were down and more funds were needed. One week later, Word Records dropped Warnke from its label. Finally, on September 30th, 1992, fewer than 100 days after the investigation was made public, Warnke's ministry closed its doors. Now there's more. There's more to this story. Oh, yeah. And the Cornerstone article is out there. I believe that there are places where you can still purchase transcripts of it. Right. I still have that issue somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's one around. of a very precious few that I kept. Yeah. For nostalgic reasons and because they had content that I just wanted to retain. I've gotten rid of most of them. Mm. And I had probably seven or eight years worth. Oh, yeah. But this one is in this house somewhere. And the transcript of it is available in a couple of places online. So if you want to get the rest of the skinny on this, you've got a really, really good primer. You've got most of the meat of the story with this, but there's definitely more. But I do think that we spent enough time on that part of things. And since we mentioned him just a couple of minutes ago, let's transition here into a little talk about Bob Larson. I personally listened to Bob for years. Before I worked for that radio station, I was listening to Bob for several years. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
he had a daily talk show, a daily two-hour talk show called Talk Back with Bob Larson. And when things were in the newer stages, Bob went after a lot of things. He went after everything from pop culture to pornography. That's how he pronounced it. It still, it still grates me to hear it said like that. To things like chiropractic. He also liked to take apart popular movies and put spins on them that were utterly ridiculous. The one that really stands out in my mind was Tim Burton's Batman in 1989. And the way that he tried to make it out like Batman rapes Vicki Vale. He literally oh tells people that Batman raped Vicki Vale in this movie because there's a scene in this movie where she's kind of lurking in the shadows and she takes a picture of him. Mm-hmm. He's dealing with some of the bad guys at that point, and they're about to pull off Batman's mask, and she's ready with the camera. But this is 1989, so it's a real camera, yeah. and it makes real noise, and she snaps the picture, and that gets the bad guy's attention. And, you know, there's this this whole fight scene that ensues and whatnot. And in the very next scene, Batman confronts her and says, you have something that I want. And the scene just sort of ends right there. There's there's a little bit of a fanfare and you see the bats flying around. And the next thing that you see is Vicki Vale still fully dressed, lying face down on a bed and literally turns over, feels around and says, oh, he took the film. Yeah. Bob wanted us to think that he just took a liking to this girl and decided to rape her. You have something that I want. Oh, brother. Okay. No. He didn't want to fuck her. He just didn't want pictures of his face out there. Yeah, it's like, Bob, that says more about you than it does about Tim Burton. Oh, God, it so totally does. And I'll take a little side trip here to the time that I actually called him. (laughs) There was one time that I called him because even as a pretty serious little evangelical who had already ditched popular music, I still liked movies. And I kind of liked schlock horror movies from the 80s. And he decided he was going to take a jab at a movie we just watched, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Yeah. Which I think is one of only two movies in that franchise that actually matter. But I remember calling him and trying to explain, you know, you have to look at fiction like it's fiction. There's really not a whole lot going on here that contradicts Christian values. It's just stupid, surface scary And it's just entertainment. Why are we making such a big deal about this? So, you know, even then, my thoughts were more like they are now than they ever were for the average evangelical. And he came back at me with this tirade about how I couldn't possibly be a Christian and think that way, that I needed to repent of watching this movie. And then he made a cliffhanger out of it. He went to commercial and he gave me an ultimatum. He said, and when we come back, you're going to have to make the decision of whether or not you want to walk away from this conversation reconciled to your God or on a hopeless path to hell or something along those lines and made the audience wait for my decision. Wow. And then when I was on hold, one of his counselors got on the phone with me and started spewing Bible verses and telling me I need to think about this this way and all of that. And then when we came back from break, I refused to repent on air. 
And he told me that I was a lost case, that I was a lost soul, that I was not any definition of what a Christian is, and that God had handed me over to a reprobate mind and that there was nothing else that he could do to help me. And then he hung up on me. Wow. I wonder. I just, you, I this. I just feel so hard for younger you. You were trying to come at him with logic. Yeah. Oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> True that. True that. And uh, there were people from my church that heard that episode. And it kind of raised some hackles with some people, too. Mm. It's like, we never realized that you think this way. It's like, well, then you don't know me. All you care about are my talents and my abilities and the things that I bring to the table, but you don't know me. Right. And that was, that really was the pattern and has been the pattern for most of my life. Oh, yeah. Is that people have always been interested in what they can get from me. I, I don't think that's unique. I don't, I'm, I don't have a persecution complex over it. It's just the way that it is. But yeah, it raised some hackles and it surprised some people that I would come back with that kind of a response. But I was getting fed up because he was doing this with every movie that he reviewed. He was taking this extreme stance on things. And I just wanted to make the point that there's a difference between reality and fiction. And in the grand scheme of things, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is not going to do the damage that you're saying it's going to do. It's a story. It is a fictional story. Just deal with it. And he did not like that. And certain other people in my life didn't like it either. But uh, that was that's the story of when I got to talk to Bob Larson. And one other thing about him was that he was also ridiculously pro-life and even had a song in rotation at Sound of Life called Unborn Child. We played his song Ugh. repeatedly and it was still being played when I started working there. And that had to be, I'd say this was 86-ish. Got to figure out when Nightmare 3 came out. I want to say 86, 87, somewhere in that neighborhood. And I went to work for the station two years later. Right. And they were still playing this. No, I'm not even kidding. And not a lot of people know about that part of what he did back then, but it was out there and we absolutely played it. He also loved talking about sex and took conversations way too far for a show that aired during afternoon drive. And one thing that he liked to do was he clearly seated the phone lines with demented yahoos whose entire reason for being was to call the show and stir shit up. Mm. He asked for money multiple times an hour. The show ran for two hours a day, five days a week. Our station only carried the first hour and a lot of stations ducked out after one hour. I'd say that if they carried both and cut out all the fundraising, you would probably, probably wind up with about 45 minutes of legit content. <sighs> That's how much he talked about money. And he talked very dramatically about the reasons why he needed the money. Long pauses in between so you could contemplate what he was saying. And then he'd fire off the phone number that you could call to make a donation. It was crazy. And after a while, and by that I mean probably at least eight or ten years later, he finally offended enough people at the radio station that they just flat out dropped him. And ironically enough, they dropped him because he insulted a repeat gay caller. And before I leave you with the thought that these people were in any way noble or felt the need to defend a homosexual, it should be noted that it was Bob's choice of words, not his opinion, that got him axed from Sound of Life. This person called in for the umpteenth time and was debating his lifestyle 
with Bob. Right. And he said something along the lines of, you know, most people live lives inside their heads that are more Monet, Renoir, just idyllic kind of portraitures of humanity. I look at myself more as a Picasso, to which Bob responded, but here's the problem. You're not a Picasso. You're a penis. And that was enough for our general manager to say, okay, this is the last day for Bob Larson on Sound of Life. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah. I definitely remember that. Mm Mm-hmm. It was a jaw dropper for sure. Mm. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, though, I thought about that. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I can understand making that decision based on that. What I don't understand is why it wasn't made way earlier because he said all kinds of crazy shit before that, too. Hmm. He was touted as America's first Christian shock jock. Ew. And I'm sorry, but shock jock really didn't jibe with what they were doing at Sound of Life. This show was so atypical of anything else that you heard on that station, but it was also popular. And we didn't have advertisers per se. But we had people who uh, who donated airtime that we would read spots for. So it was basically the same thing. It's just that they, they weren't under contract or anything. And we had so many people that wanted their spots read during this show that it hung on probably for several years longer than certain people at that place were comfortable. But, you know, they're evangelicals and they think like evangelicals and this was bringing in money. So they just let it go until they had a that's all I can stands. I can't stands no more moment. They just Mm. let it go. And there were loads of parallels between Bob and Mike Warnke, too, including extramarital activities. Although, let's be fair, Bob's exploits made him look like a choir boy in comparison to Mike Warnke. But for all of his talk about sanctity of marriage and sexual purity, he also had a hard time keeping mini me in check. And when his first wife, Kathy, found out that he was messing around on her, she did the sensible thing and divorced him. He skirted this as much as he could, and one of a couple of occasions when a caller would get through the screeners and call him out over it, he would hit the panic button that's supposed to be for, like, profanity and whatnot, and he would mute the caller before anything incriminating could go out over the air. Now, to put this in perspective for you, even network television only has about a five-second delay. This guy really knew how to cover his bases. I think that he said that he worked on a 15-second delay. And one time I can remember such a long pause of dead air that everyone thought that the station had lost its uplink to the show. But it was Bob making damn sure that the audio didn't go out over what this guy was saying because he call, he was calling Bob out over the whole adultery thing. Mm. And when we finally heard Bob again, he comes back and says, you're a liar and you're a jerk. And I don't want to talk to you anymore or something along those lines. He went full on toddler at the end of that and then went to break. That was how he uh, dealt with that. And when he came back from break, he played the poor me card with the audience and went right back into an appeal for more money. And that's how he dealt with it. That tracks. Mm -hmm. It took him a while, but Bob eventually found his niche. And that was in the area of demon possession and exorcism. This is what this guy is most known for, but it didn't start out that way. It wasn't 100% of his ministry. Again, when you bring the devil into the conversation, most evangelicals perk up like dogs when they hear the food bat rattle. And 
This level of attention skewed his ministry off into a tangent that he still uses today to pull off his grift. Today, it's basically all he's known for. He's the pastor of a church in Arizona, but most popular media identifies him only as an exorcist, and this is clearly the public persona that he wishes to maintain. He capitalized like crazy on the satanic panic and still perpetuates nonsense about demons and demon possession holding exorcism services and events all over the U.S. and also abroad. Bob Larson has been heralded as the world's first Christian shock jock and with just the couple of examples I've mentioned, it's easy to see why. He really rode the wave of the satanic panic and managed to keep the momentum going long after its fires had started smoldering to embers. He still does the talk show circuit and still makes news with his demon fighting antics. He has his own YouTube channel, The Whole Nine Yards. He's taken his ilk as far as Ukraine and constantly tries to insert himself into anything in the news that steers toward the subject of demon possession. The momentum for it really began during his talkback days when he repeatedly claimed to exercise people over the phone when quote unquote possessed people called in. Some called looking for deliverance, but it was way more fun when the subject just started off as something else and then suddenly the demons showed up. Again, most if not all of these people were plants. I mean, it was it was really, really poor acting. And even I could tell how much of it was fake. And I can't do an entire segment on Bob without mentioning his book, Dead Air. He actually wrote several books, including Abaddon and The Senator's Agenda, but Dead Air is still the one that gets the most attention. But the contents of Dead Air seem to be a little more than a purgation of Larson's own imagination, telling tales of the worst kinds of satanic ritual abuse, the likes of which don't exist outside the realm of evangelical sensationalism and urban legend. The content of the book was so graphic that it raised the ire of many evangelical leaders at the time. Novel or no, there are lines you don't cross to make certain points, and Bob didn't just cross them. He lunged past them with a level of abandon that made John Trott, also from Cornerstone Magazine, describe the book as being part of a new genre, Christian porn. Savor the irony of a dude who calls out people for having addictions to sex and pornography, who then turns around and delivers this kind of messaging, dragging two ghostwriters through the process with him. And as a standalone story, there's worse out there. But in a world where there are people who will only read novels that are stamped Christian, I'm sure that a lot of what goes on in this book had to do a lot of emotional damage, particularly to girls, because if you're going to write a story about sexual abuse, it's going to be a girl at the center of it. David A.R. White knows a thing or two about this too. And the kicker is, that to this day, it's tolerated just as long as you bring Jesus into it at some point. Mm. Now I'm going to shift the focus to a group of grifters and mind control fanatics who unleashed hell on the music industry and scared the shit out of a lot of people during the satanic panic. We're going to spend a few minutes on the Peters Brothers, Gary Greenwald, and Joe Vieira. And just so we're clear, the latter two followed almost directly on the heels of the Peters Brothers. All the same examples, all the same stories with a few original points of research into other people and things to make them seem more legit. It was about 98% plagiarism and 2% original content with the others. Not even kidding. The Peters yeah. Brothers started out with a pretty vanilla approach. Originally, they set out to persuade people that rock music was bad, and they used all kinds of idiotic examples to prove their point. This band sucks because they write all their songs high on weed. Um, 
That accounts for a lot of the best songs out there. I'm sorry. I hate to say it, but without illicit drugs, Fleetwood Mac would never have made their way out of the bar scene. And the world would likely never have been favored with the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, or the White Album, or Rubber Soul, or Yellow Submarine, or most of anything that they did after they met Ravi Shankar. Yeah. Um, and these marvelous examples of humanity, Dan and Steve Peters, used to take the time to thank God whenever a rock musician died, especially if they died of unnatural causes, which many do. Yeah. But Dan and Steve were on a mission. They wanted people to ditch rock music, and they had a whole platform of books and roving seminars that pled their case and encouraged people to burn their godless rock music albums. Not smash, not thrown away, but burn. They even took on Gene Simmons for his sexual behaviors, particularly with young groupies who found their way backstage at Kiss concerts. Gene Simmons, in pure Gene Simmons style, that follows him to this day proclaimed loudly and defiantly that he'd had an insane number of groupies, which the Peters brothers then translated into the band having rampant sex with 14-year-olds. The average groupie was definitely young, but if 14-year-olds were involved, it was a matter of bad security and maybe a little bit of that their drug-induced bad behavior. But I would have to imagine that most, if not all of them, were over 18. But Gene was quick to point out that those weren't the band's exploits, that they were his and honestly i'm sure the numbers were hugely inflated but gene was going for shock value after all because that's the kiss brand in a nutshell and he wanted to make these little evangelical wigglers squirm a little so he inflated the numbers to make them a little bit more uncomfortable Mm. but when telling people not to listen to fleetwood mac because Lindsay and stevie like their coke and booze started becoming passe They steered the conversation in the direction of, you guessed it, backward masking. These two were the pioneers of that arm of the satanic panic, but their approach wasn't unique. They basically set out on their mission, having stolen all their material from a book written two years earlier by a guy named Jacob Aranza. And that book was called Backward Masking Exposed. But Aranza didn't have the following or the visibility or possibly even the desire to get out ahead of the pack So the Peters brothers directly plagiarized all this guy's work, wrote their own book, Rock's Hidden Persuader, The Truth About Backmasking, and took to the road with it. But it was largely, pardon the pun, unsung Aranza that came up with at least 90% of the examples the Peters brothers would pick up and run with. Mm. And since these two aren't the only shameless attention whores out there capable of this kind of blatant forgery, along came a guy named Gary Greenwald, whose backward-masking seminar, Rock a Bye Bye Baby, which you can find in almost its entirety on SoundCloud. Unfortunately, it cuts off about 20 or 20 or so minutes early, because there's a whole segment at the end that I think people really should have the opportunity to hear, because it really puts together what he was actually trying to do. But that part's not in there. But the rest of it is there on SoundCloud. It's called Rock a Bye Bye Baby. And it comes up on the first page of a Google search. And what he had to say would sear itself into my brain and motivate me to smash insane numbers of records and tapes, all while thanking Jesus for freeing me from the clutches of the evil that is secular music. And that was their plan. After listening to this, I swore off secular music and steered clear for several years during the mid-80s, during the pinnacle age of pop music. I was off listening to Petra and Striper mm. and and whoever else, Margaret Becker, 
and I, I had I had a few faves. Yeah. But I wasn't listening to secular radio. Between 1985 and 1989, I had kind of distanced myself from it. And it was all because of this guy. So let's talk about him for a few and some of the things that he did. He followed directly, directly in the footsteps of the Peters brothers. From what he talked about, to how he presented it, to the very examples that he used, there was nothing that was unique about this guy's presentation. The Peters brothers liked to take apart album covers. Well, Gary Greenwald liked to take apart the same album covers. <laughs> the Peters brothers made slanderous statements about multiple artists. Gary Greenwald made slanderous statements about multiple artists. And he even brought Aleister Crowley into the conversation when they were talking about Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. And using the fact that, and it is a fact, I looked it up, that uh, Jimmy Page once lived in a house that was previously owned by Aleister Crowley. Yeah. then the satanic messaging in Stairway to Heaven must have been true. And I don't know about the Peters Brothers. Actually, no, I do. I do know about the Peters Brothers because I saw them once. I actually do know this. Both the Peters Brothers and Gary Greenwald claimed that there was also Christian backward masking mm-hmm. and talked about the song Rainbow by Randy Stonehill and the intro to Judas Kiss yeah. from Petra. That one was just, it was blatant and it was deliberate because that album came out in the midst of all of this. So at the beginning of that song, you hear all this backwards stuff. And when you play it backwards, you hear, what are you looking for the devil for when you ought to be looking for the Lord? And when you look carefully at the album, if you have the LP for more power to you, you see that same message going around the perimeter of the album cover. What are you looking for the devil for when you ought to be looking for the Lord? And the one step further that Gary Greenwald took this was that he ended the seminar with a recounting of some dude's fever dream about a near-death experience where he literally goes to hell and comes back and talks about all the things that he saw. And he delivers this complete with scary music playing in the background. And he used that to get young people to the altar and make them make pledges to return the next day with all their secular music, which would be added to a massive bonfire that was scheduled for the following evening. So that was Gary Greenwald. (laughs) And I don't think that there was another guy out there that fucked me up worse than he did as a kid. I heard a few more of these things, mostly movies, because we didn't get a lot of the people roaming around. Right. I think it was called Hell's Bells, The Devil in Rock Music or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I remember it's like I had heard all this stuff before because, of course, you know, you hear it over and over and over again. But, you know, they would take apart the album covers and it's like, I have heard of none of these people. Right. And I wanted to see if I could find the album cover for this weird one that I really stuck in my mind. Because it was, the album cover was the nativity scene. Okay. And that's familiar and it always looks the same, except instead of the baby Jesus, there was a little purple Y in the manger. And it was called the birth of the Y. (laughs) And I'm like, because he he said, yes, they're questioning the divinity of Jesus. Because why? And I was like, okay, who did this? And I looked it up and I found it. And it's a compilation of Norwegian metal. That's what it is. It's yep. like, it's not even a single band. It's like a compilation album, like a sampler. Right. It's like, really? 
you had to go this far. Okay. Yeah, apparently. Apparently they did. I, I mean, there were so many, so many stretches and so many things that they tried to pull out, like the Hotel California album oh, cover, yeah. talking about how if you zoom in on a certain part of the building that you could actually see Anton LaVey. Um, the jury is still out for me whether or not that's true. You know, but again, we were told to see it, so of course we saw it. And not even knowing what he looked like at the time, I, I saw what looked like a bald guy in one of the windows. Was that what they were trying to do? I don't know. And to be quite frank, I don't care, because that song isn't about what Gary Greenwald said it was about. He tried to tell us that that was about the establishment of the Church of Satan in California. And no, if you listen to the lyrics of Hotel California, it is clearly about drug addiction and almost exclusively about heroin addiction. She lit up a candle and showed him the way. And later on, he figures out that he's addicted. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. There's all kinds of imagery in there that leads to drug abuse and drug addiction and absolutely nothing that leads to Satanism. Of course. So when you listen to it, with educated ears and you listen to it without the preconceived notions going in, then it takes on a different meaning. And that song is creepy as fuck. Oh, yeah. But it's supposed to be. And it's supposed to be a warning. Yeah. That's what it is. Because all these guys took drugs, but they realized at some point that this is not a good thing to do. Right. <laughs> right. So moving past Gary Greenwald, let's lastly take a look at a guy named Joe Vieira who I have to assume was just a regional copycat that pretty much no one outside the Northeast has probably ever heard of. I tried Googling him and didn't come up with anything about him. So he was very flash in the pan, but he was another one that had some influence on me. So we're going to talk about him for just a couple seconds here. This guy was a combination of the Peters brothers, Gary Greenwald, and Bob Larson all rolled into one. He had fake stories about satanic involvement. He used all the same backward masking examples, and he had one of the first high-tech presentations that I'd seen on this. He also made slanderous statements about various artists, but his list was a few years younger than Greenwald's. He was trying to be a little bit more relevant and a little bit more in tune with the times, and it still didn't work out very well because it was nothing but baseless slander. And I sat through at least two days worth of this shit, and it was just like rock a bye bye baby all over again, with the exception that I got to attend this one with my girlfriend. You see, in the circles that I moved in, and when you think about who this girl's parents were, I had to be doing something church-related to be able to spend any kind of quality time with her. So we got it into our heads that we were going to go to the seminar because it was three hours, not for one night, but for two. So we would get to be together for all of that time and listen to the same shit on a different night. That was pretty much it. And the other little perk of that was that whenever we got bored, we would just sneak away and go make out, <laughs> which was yeah. fun. You know, it was a very teenagery sort of thing to do. And you know what? To be perfectly honest, it kind of softened the sting of the whole thing, being able to chunk memories of heavy petting in with all the lunacy of the backward masking bullshit. But he also siphoned money out of us with a couple of tales of woe, including helping his poor son, who had fallen into the horror that is Wicca. Oh, no. Yeah, he needed money to pull his kid from the clutches of candles, chants, and cakes and ale. God, I miss all that. It was so much fun. It really it was. It really was a lot of fun. I mean, I'm not going to reimburse myself in it and no. you know, on, on any spiritual level, but I, I'll say it again. I'll attend a ritual. 
they're fun. Yeah. And if you and if you just walk into it with that mindset, it's not a big deal. So basically, only Jacob Aranza did any actual work on this. And these motherfuckers all walked away with the money. And there were plenty more who took all the same material and made a few bucks off of it along the way. The funny thing is, I'm not as irritated with Aranza as I am with the others because there at least seemed to be a sincerity to what that guy was trying to accomplish. All his work fell into the hands of a few unscrupulous opportunists, and those people turned the crazy switch up to 11 with it. So what's really going on with things like this? Knowing what we know about the evangelical mindset, it's easy to see how someone like Mike Warnke could pull off his grift for years without opposition and without question. This is the way we're taught to deal with things when we're immersed in this religion. Even if we have doubt, we trust that this person's experience is what they say it is, and the entertainment value of the messaging keeps us tethered to it. Without all the satanic hysteria, Mike Warnke really didn't have a story to tell. He is a Christian whose conversion was uneventful, and it only ever impacted him emotionally. Later, as he observed the world of evangelicalism, he clearly started to notice patterns in the way people presented their testimonies. A lot of us add little embellishments here and there to augment the monotony of a story. It happens in a variety of contexts. For most, it's just a matter of acceptance, getting people to care about the things we've been through or go through. This part of the story is a little bland, so let's liven it up with a few of what a graphic in the Cornerstone article described as amazing tales of sin and degradation. And when your motivation is to profit from your testimony, those subtle embellishments become the center of the story. For Mike, I'm sure it started out as a means of garnering acceptance, but his overall awkwardness, very average looks, and his reportedly very quirky personality in a way forced all the erroneous details to the surface. And when people started listening, probably for the first time in his life, he found his hook and ran with it, just like Arnold in the musical The Book of Mormon. Yeah. For people like Bob Larson, I believe it boils down to a simple thing called marketing. I listened to years worth of his content and listened to him take apart things like Scientology, energy healing, and yes, even chiropractic. He had heavy emphases and spent lots of times on subjects that revolved around sex and sexuality. It kept listeners engaged and it kept the money rolling in. But as I've learned over time, all marketing strategies need to shift eventually. I'm guessing that he and his staff figured out that the donation lines lit up more when Bob was dealing with subjects that centered on Satanism and demon possession, so he did what any good marketer does. He gave his listeners what they wanted and watched as the money just rolled in, and still does. The same holds true for the ones who went on a crusade against backward masking. The Peters brothers saw something marketable in the messaging, whereas Jacob Aranza did what he did seemingly to inform rather than profit. He wanted to make people agree with him, and I'm sure he wanted to sell books too, but he was nowhere near as aggressive with the messaging as Dan and Steve Peters, Gary Greenwald, or Joe Vieira were. The simple fact that all three of them literally stole the messaging directly from the source, almost never deviating from it or even researching unique examples, tells me that these people saw a cash cow in this concept and got about the business of marketing the message in a way that led to profit. What all these people have in common is that they know how evangelicals think. They can say whatever they want, and it's not likely that they're going to be questioned. And when you try, not only does the presenter turn on you, the whole room can too. This happened the second night of the Joe Vieira seminar when I chimed in with a comment during his Q&A at the end. 
I brought up the idea that we might be hearing things only because we expect to hear them and are being told to listen for them. I asked why he wouldn't just play the excerpt from a song without commentary and see what the wider audience hears without prompting. I also asked why, if this is such a widespread problem that has permeated every corner of rock music, why do we ever only hear the same dozen or so examples? Is this a thing you're continually researching, or did it have a start and stop point that prohibit finding and exploring new examples? This went as well as you might expect, and there were murmurings and admonishments from every corner of that church sanctuary, and Joe was visibly and audibly uncomfortable with me. I was told that Satan was speaking to my spirit, trying to convince me that this wasn't as big a deal as it actually was, and I think I might have inadvertently boosted his profits that night. You know, a few spite offerings from some of the other detractors in the room probably made it into the plate. But like I've said many times, my brain was always fighting with this mindset. And even having conceded to the evils of pop music, I still thought that if this was a real thing, they should be doing more to uncover how widespread the problem actually was. Half of it was skepticism. Half of it was me seeking validation for smashing my copy of Born in the USA. (laughs) So final takeaway never stop questioning. Never take what anyone says about anything at face value, especially if there is tangible benefit to that person in you believing them. Proof is a necessary element to the equation, and when your testimony is disproven over and over and over again, it's time to assess whether or not you really want to place a whole lot of stock in this person or support what they do. When they use sensationalistic storytelling mixed with fear to churn up your emotions, ask yourself why. Why, if this is true, does it require all this fanfare? And why do they wait until they have you in that headspace of dread and fear before they hit you up for the money? When they use copycat methods to convey their messaging and never deviate from the source material long enough to provide validation to the messaging, ask yourself why you keep hearing the same rhetoric over and over and over again. Just because you saw the Peters Brothers on Friday, went to a Gary Greenwald seminar on Saturday, and sat at a Joe Vieira presentation in church on Sunday that all convey the same messaging, that is not a sign that the message is true. It's just a sign that three people all said the same thing. Keeping up a good intellectual barrier to the assault people like this wage on your emotions will keep you in question mode. This is a good thing. You've spent enough time blindly following and believing. If someone wants you to adjust your lifestyle to fit their perception of morality, if they bombard you with sensationalism as a means to scare you or steer your thinking in directions that feel errant or uncomfortable, and if the extent of their apologetic doesn't reach any further than, well, that guy said, Know that there is precious little substance to the messaging and that their motivation is not to help you be a better person. Their motivation is to perpetuate this evangelical idea of control that leads to obedience, that leads to dollars in offering plates. That is it. There's no more to it than that. Stay aware, stay skeptical, and form your own opinions based on logic, reason, and factual data. Once you back them and their messaging into that kind of a corner, they can't influence you. They'll move on to easier targets and you get to take another one of those all important steps toward getting and staying unbound. 
enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.